Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, just a reminder, our Young Adult Liturgy Conference is July 12th, 13th, and 14th, and you can find out more information about that conference at www.betransfigured.com. This week, we are talking with Chris about the three things that you should be doing or seeing during the liturgy. So without further ado, episode 31 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Chris, what do we got today? Yes, I want to uh, suggest three steps to a perfect liturgy. All right. I'll be over there, and you okay. let me know when you're done. Liturgical three-step. <laughs> All right. All right. Step one. Step one. Well, the first thing, uh, what I want you to do is uh, imagine where you sit generally in the nave of the church. This will work better for people in the pews rather than for the priest or minister in the sanctuary. All right, so if you're a priest or a minister in the sanctuary, shut off the podcast. No, no, no. Oh, this is, this yeah. is very... Relevant to you too, but it'll be easier to picture uh, as a person sitting in the pew. Okay, so where, right. where do you where do you go to mass? Uh, at St. Raphael's. Okay, where do you sit? I, in the nave. Okay, where? But I bet it's in the same spot generally. Yeah, so. every week. Okay. Yeah, okay. on the left where? side, about uh, five pews back. Okay, all right, Dennis. I only go to mass in a little tiny chapel. And <laughs> I'm always the cantor right. and the lector and the sacristan and sit in the front row about three feet from the now altar. Now that's uh-huh. active participation. Yeah, well, this has something to do with that. All right. Okay, so everybody have uh, where you sit. And I want to suggest three, uh, I guess you'd say actors or three bodies of uh, people who perform the liturgy and who do it more or less better or worse, I suppose. Okay. Okay. So, Is this uh, like a goofing and gallant? Goofus and Gallant. I don't know. From Highlights. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever get Highlights magazine? No. That was a kid Um, magazine back in the olden days. Yeah. Goofus and Gallant. Goofus was the guy who did it wrong. Gallant was the guy that did it right. Okay. Well, let's start with the guy who gets it right. Okay. So as you look up into the sanctuary and the liturgies going on, if you were to look uh, kind of behind the signs around the side of, say, you know, the altar or beneath, you're kind of looking on the opposite side of all these things you can see. Which guy do you see? On the uh, Jesus Christ? Right. Okay, okay, so here's actor number one. He's the, the first part of uh, liturgical action. So Jesus is the uh, the prime minister. Is he goofus or gallant? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me. Okay, I thought we were putting ourselves in like three different people who attend Mass. Sort of. This, this will start to make okay, sense. Okay, got it. Okay. I, I hope. <laughs> okay. So Jesus is the first and primary actor, and he always does the liturgy perfectly, right? So what is his action at the liturgy? He is the Pontifex Maximus. Okay, which means? He is the, the head of the body of the liturgy. Okay, so what's he doing? The great bridge builder between heaven and earth, right. so God off- and humanity. He's offering himself as perfect sacrifice uh, uh, to God the Father for the salvation of the world. Mm-hmm. And he always does it right. And so what do we call uh, when in sacramental action, Jesus is, how, how, how do you describe the efficacy of sacramental action that names Jesus's work. Oh, oh, uh, 
X X O X operanti operantis. Oh my gosh, I should know that. That wasn't bad, Jesse. That's embarrassing. No, no, no. Okay, so here is uh, actor number one, Jesus Christ. He's always performing uh, his liturgical work, his sacrificial action perfectly. And this is called ex opere operato. Got it. All right, so, so far, our liturgy is absolutely perfect. Okay, now go to uh, step number two. And this has to do with, so you have Jesus kind of behind the scenes uh, doing his work, but how is that work made present? Through the priest. Through the priest and... And the so, other members of the mystical body, Christ. Oh, yeah, right. And, and all of the other signs and symbols, right? Mm-hmm. So Jesus' saving action, which is perfect, ex operato, becomes manifest, present, tangible, real through uh, the priest and the ministers, but also through the vestments and the architecture and the appointments. And, and the, the form music, and the matter. And the word and the form and the matter. Got it. Right. Okay, so this is the second, I guess, uh, body of workers, that has to be in order for the liturgy to be to do what it does. We'll call them human beings and accessories. Sort of. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so, so this is where things can start to be... Uh, um, not so perfect. Not so perfect, right? <laughs> Got it. Right. Okay. And so um, you're right. So you mentioned matter and form uh, before. Uh, if you have the proper matter and the proper form, your sacramental celebration is said to be valid. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if uh, if we kind of uh, skew or we don't um, express it as the church wants, it can be start to become illicit. But what the church has started to call this kind of the performance of the liturgical act, the making present of Christ's work, is called Ars Celebrandi. What's Ars Celebrandi, Dennis? The art of celebrating. Yeah, what does it mean? Dennis? <laughs> <laughs> it's a non-tangible expression of... Something, action, and thought that's beyond the law, the mere law, and the mere sacramental um, minimalization of the liturgy, but into the realm of revealing the action of Christ and the heavenly realities of all the stuff. Is that close? Yeah, I think so. But what's I like how you said it. there's a relationship to the law. What's the relationship of art and law? Well, the law is the minimum, right? Law is not the same um, as loving something, right? If you do the bare minimum at your job because if you don't, you get fired, that's not the same as fully embracing the action and the activity. Someone who loves their job doesn't even care about the law, really, because the law is, in a sense, irrelevant because they know what their job is and they do it with delight. And so to make the symbolic meaning more full and more... uh, compelling in a way, more delightful. I think the the law is a bare minimum, and after that, it's this fullness of the delightful revelation. Yeah, I was thinking more actually literally, though, law. Let's say, uh, excuse me, art. Like if you're an artist, a painter, a sculptor, an Yeah, you make, like reveal, you do. But it's based on, it has to be based on some kind of natural laws or supernatural laws that aren't, you know, just knowing, uh, uh, you know, if you're going to paint a, an image or something like that, there has to be a discernible... Uh, I don't know, uh, shape or form or something that's, uh, that, that exists in the natural world according to a natural law. Right. If I'm going to paint your portrait, I will look at the law of what human faces look like and then how your face makes that a particular instantiation of that. And I can't give you three eyes just because I feel like it unless I decide to break the law. Yeah. Yeah. Then that's it. That's what happens. If you break the law, then the, the, the work of art becomes, you know, ugly or malformed or deformed. Or and it doesn't it reveal you because you don't have, th- you don't have three eyes. And usually it that makes the art, the, the, the looker, the, the viewer wonder, what is this artist doing putting three eyes on Chris instead of just letting us know 
Chris. Right. And so this Ars Celebrani is based upon, say, the, the supernatural laws of the liturgy. Again, I don't mean by that that they're divinely res- uh, inspired all the time, but they're the laws of the church that helps to make uh, Christ's uh, saving work present. And the Catechism will call the Holy Spirit the uh, artisan of God's masterpieces, the sacraments of the new law. So the principal, uh, uh, I guess, artist, you could say, is the Holy Spirit, and he helps the priest and the ministers and the musicians and the readers. And as you said before, I mean, we're, we're the, the people in the assembly are part of this symbol system, this sacramental system, too. So he inspires, uh, think about the inspired artist, you know, he inspires all of us to work according to the laws of the church's liturgy so that we can help to reveal and manifest and make present uh, the prime minister who is Christ. So that's the, the Holy Spirit is the third aspect of this? No. Oh. No. So we're still in, point, we're still okay. in step Whoa. number two wow. for perfect liturgy. So number one was the work of Jesus, absolutely perfect all the time. Step two is how the ministers and the various elements perform their Ars Celebrandi that can either reveal the substance of Christ perfectly and beautifully, or because we get in the way, uh, then we start to reveal different aspects of ourself or our community or whatever it is. We get in the way of the revelation of Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, the point is to encounter the things of God, to encounter the face of God, to encounter Christ. And it's in encountering that's the transformational moment. So, you know, if someone says, oh, you should, you're worthy of being loved. And you say, well, so what? You know, nobody loves me. And then someone comes along and loves you. You knew it before, but it's made real in you and changes in you when you are loved by someone who act, makes an act of genuine, encounterable love of you. So to say, well, we have to follow the laws or else, you know, we're like hyper-legislative. That's not the issue. The question is, how do we make the things of heaven and God knowable to the senses? And we can either, as Chris just said, get in the way of that and make it less encounterable or make it more encounterable and therefore more effective in changing us, changing the world. And that's the thing you talk about a lot, Dennis, is not only worshiping God as God wants to be worshiped, but giving God the one thing he can't just take from us, which is our free will to love and contribute what we want and our desire in this process. Right, and the bridge between those things is, in many ways, the Arshel Brandi. Is the music inspiring you to say, oh, I'm a sinner and God loves me and I'm gonna surrender myself to him more freely than I would have otherwise? Or is the music so weird that you're just like, who's that music director and who picked that song and what kind of idiot would do this? And then see, you're not only not giving yourself to God, you're actually pulling yourself away from God and starting to think bad things about people. And it's, interrupting the encounter with these heavenly realities that can transform you into heavenly stuff. To me, that's like, if I had the bell here, I'd be ringing it. But that's the big thing. Encounter the things of God sacramentally, and you can do it well, or you can do it in a lousy way. Don't be an idiot. My I, favorite line. <laughs> I meant to look this up before the podcast, uh, but it, um, id, an idiot means what? I, uh, myself? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a reference to yourself. And so if you're an idiot... Uh, what are you doing? You're drawing attention to yourself. But in the liturgy, if you have, if you're a part of the Ars Celebrandi, you don't want to draw attention to yourself, except insofar as Jesus is present and active and revealing Himself in you. But at the point where you start to draw attention to yourself, as the cantor or the lector or the guy in the fifth pew on the left side or the priest or the deacon or anybody. Uh, by what you wear, by how you sit, by what you do with your hands, by whatever it is, you're being an idiot because you're drawing attention. That to is yourself incredibly insightful. Don't be an idiot to Jesus. Wow, no, no, mm. there's, there's, there's real truth. I there. love that. That's okay? great. 
So this is the second step to perfect liturgy. Don't be an idiot. Be transparent. <laughs> be a mystagogue. Be, be easier uh, said than done, Chris. Well, no, it is. It is. It is. A sure, it is. Someone else it is what you should be. Yes, you yeah. should be a someone else it. An else it. But here's here's the and you started to hint at this in in your uh, um, explanation there a little bit. The third participant or the third element to perfect liturgy are the people who are participating. Right, because as as you were saying, Dennis, you have kind of Jesus on the one hand, the reality, and then you've got the people, God's people, the members of His mystical body, on the other hand, and their encounter with Christ, where they become divinized, where they uh, receive the love of God and express their love back to God, is this medium, this sacramental medium of the Ars Celebrandi. Um, so, on the one hand, you could have, say, as excellent of um, uh, ministries and functions and music and all of the rest, but the people themselves need to know how to engage it. And so this is the third part, the active participation of the people. So if the first part is the work of Jesus, ex opere apparato, the second is the ars, uh, is the, the priests and the ministers, called ars celebrandi, the third is the people, and what they do is actively participate, which again isn't... Uh, if anybody's listening to this podcast for a little while. I know while, what you're going to say. Yeah, it's, Colonel Reitinger's uh, quote about as many people as possible doing as many things as possible. Is that what you're going to say? It ain't that. Oh, okay. It ain't that. Yeah, it's the, it's the uh, as much as possible as you're saying, is giving one's will and heart and love over to God, which, again, always takes place through this sacramental uh, medium. And so these, is, as, I say, as, as I see it, so go back to this place where you're sitting in the pew, Behind the signs and the symbols is Jesus performing his uh, saving work from the cross. Secondly, that's made present in the priest and the deacon and the ministers and the architecture and the music. And then third, there is you sitting in your place in the pew, certainly not doing anything. Uh, you're not not doing anything. You're I'm not, not your doing whole, anything. <laughs> you're giving your whole self along with Christ through the medium of the sacramental symbols. I was watching this uh, online course the other day from this really great um, graduate degree program, the Liturgical Institute. Oh, yes. Uh, this course is not out yet, so I got a sneak peek of this because I'm editing it. Um, and Dennis was talking a little bit about devotions being idiosyncratic oh. as being, you know, something that you're doing, you're, you're making things out of sync. You're not synchronized with everybody else. And so devotions you know, before Vatican II were thought to be some things that were drawing people away from that Idiosyncratic. I don't know that I would say it quite that way, but... It would be in sync with me, with the id. Right. right. So I, I was my, paraphrasing you, so okay. why don't you paraphrase yourself, <laughs> and then I'll just... I'll remember what I said, but <laughs> at, at that time, they, they again, not against devotions. Devotions are good. Private right, right. prayer is fine, and some devotions are public. You have group rosary, for instance. But the idea was that Private devotions do not replace the corporate act of being to joined to the headship of Christ and offering. Is that Christ. not what I said you said? That's not what you said Dang I said. It. <laughs> so devotion's good. And in a sense, they can be idiosyncratic, right? It's what I want at that moment. And that's okay. Sometimes that's what you need. If you're sick in a certain way, you need to go talk to the patron saint of your diseased body part. St. Peregrine, isn't he? Uh, <laughs> the cancer saint. Cancer, right. yeah. yeah okay. But if everybody replaced Sunday Mass with the St. Peregrine novena, every week, then you'd say, well, hey, okay, private devotion is good, but it's not the corporate act and it's not the central act of the saving Christian mystery, which is the liturgy and Christ's action, as Chris has been talking about here. So how do we orient ourselves in that, you know, now that we have segmented these 
three concepts. How do we take that further? Yeah, well, I think the first part is just understanding kind of this liturgical dynamic. If you have the work of Christ made present in the Ars Celebrandi, which is the ritual and its uh, component parts, so that the people can actively participate in it. So just understand that this is sort of the how, how, the, how the liturgical system works. Uh, second of all, I mean, we don't need to help Jesus improve his work. Mm-hmm. He's always going to work perfectly every single time. But if you are a priest or a deacon or a liturgical minister of some sort, and even see the people, as I said, the people in the pews aren't looking at this from the outside. They're a part of the symbol system too. So the liturgical symbols have to, with the aid of the Holy Spirit and the church who's been at work at this for millennia, have to follow the liturgical laws and be inspired by the love of God and the Holy Spirit, be docile enough that Jesus can reveal himself through the right. We don't want to get in the way of Christ revealing himself to the people. So this is the thing that the ministers need to know. It's not Mm -hmm. about us, us idiots. It's Mm -hmm. about Jesus Christ. And then the third, I would say, is if you're in the pew, you, you know what's unfolding and how it's unfolding before your eyes. And that what's at stake here is uh, you know you joining yourself to God. So uh, oftentimes uh, we had an ordination uh, recently, and I I review with the uh, the lectors. We use inst- instituted lectors at the uh, cathedral, and I go through the instructions. Okay, uh, after the MC leaves, uh, then you're going to come. You're going to bow to the bishop and first reader. You're going to go up and you're going to say this, and you're going to sing your conclusion. You know, and whatnot. Uh, like that. And then afterwards, I say, then you don't have anything else to do except offer your whole selves along with Jesus Christ through the hands of the priest to God the Father. That's, if you're not That's doing it. that, yeah, yeah. That, really, if you're not doing that, why are you there? Mm-hmm. That's the, the point of being there. So liturgies can become better and more perfect, not because we help, not because Jesus is lacking, but because we're not celebrating as authentically and beautifully as we possibly can, and we're not participating as authentically and fruitfully as we might. And we've talked about in the past how it can actually be more difficult if you are a minister during the liturgy to actively participate in that way because you may be a cantor and you may be like going over the responsorial psalm and the refrains or things in your head. Well, Dennis can speak to that. You said yeah. at the beginning that you're <laughs> the lector and the reader, or I guess it's the same thing, the lector and Sacristan. the cantor, whatever. I mean, so isn't it nice just to go to a mass sometimes and say, I have nothing to do except pray? Yeah, if they do it as well as I do it. <laughs> <laughs> then you start to worry about it. Step aside, pal. I'm not in charge. <laughs> but you're right. If something's beautiful and you just kind of rest in it. Like if you're the, I use the jacuzzi all the time. Like if you're the jacuzzi keeper, right? And you have to test the pH and you have to test the temperature and the motor and all that. You don't, you're always around the jacuzzi, but you never sit in it and just delight in it. So sometimes it's nice to let somebody else be the jacuzzi keeper and just sit in the jacuzzi. But on the other hand, sometimes it's nice to say, I have the perfect jacuzzi, perfect chlorination, perfect temperature, perfect bubbles, and and then, you know, sit it in after hours and bring other people to it as well. Excellent. Okay. Piece of cake. One, two, three. That was, that's easy. Mm-hmm. We can all do that. Yeah, we can. It's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what we've been saying here, basically, something Cardinal Ratzinger's been saying for a long time, there's a pre-existing reality called the liturgy, and it's in heaven, and Christ is offering himself and us to God the Father. And we're trying to make that reality knowable here. Now, if that applies to everything, how would that affect music, Jesse? Oh, man. Well, it would be, it would be beyond, my, uh, be beyond myself. It'd be something that would open me up to something beyond myself right. elsewhere. 
But what would we try to make the choir do on earth? Sound like heaven. Sound like heaven. Yeah. Okay. So what does that sound like? It's praise of God. It's offering I don't to know. God. I've never it's been to heaven. Pleading with God. See, but well. you have. If you haven't been to heaven, this is the problem with our liturgies <laughs> because they are a foretaste of heaven. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, God willing, when you do get to heaven someday, you can say, Ah, I've been going here for you know every day for seventy six years. So I, I know what I know what to expect. I've been in that sanctus rehearsal forever. Okay, now mm-hmm. let me actually sing it forever. We were talking about play one time. How you play a game mm-hmm. rather than work a game once you've mastered what's you know what oh, being yeah. good at the game or play the piano. You don't practice. You practice the piano when you're laboring. You play the piano when you've become good at it. So the idea is encounter the things of heaven musically. What does it sound like? What does it look like? What are, what are the people doing? What is the you know, they're singing holy, holy, holy? And what is the canticle of the lamb and the other canticles from the book of Revelation? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And it's this cry of joy at Christ's victory, which is always in song, right? This is your love song between heaven and earth. Despite some other people's argument that there's no singing in heaven, I think we're pretty firmly uh, claim that that's the how it's sacramental. They'll say there's no beer in heaven. <laughs> no, it's sacramentalized on earth. And I'm not going. <laughs> All right. Hey, should we answer a liturgy question? Let's let's do let's answer the liturgy question via three steps. One, that the work is worked by the worker who works. Well said. And then the other two steps. Okay. <laughs> the rest of us. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here. But you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Oh, my goodness, Jesse, do we have a question for We, we for do us today? have a question. Can I keep talking like Woody Allen? No, please don't. Okay. All right, this question is from Hervé. Hervé? Yeah, oh, we know him. Yeah, he's a, he's a Patreon supporter. Right, I've never wanna, met him, but if I... If you want to support us on Patreon, go to patreon.com. Thank you, Hervé. Thank you for watching yeah. the online classes uh, as well. Her- yeah. Hervé says, I have encountered recently two extreme attitudes about the use of Latin in the liturgy. On my left, Latin was the language of the first Christians, so Latin is a historical coincidence, now obsolete since Latin is no longer spoken, quote-unquote, by the people. On my right, the deep conviction that the devil hates Latin and therefore Latin is more efficient in prayer. Can you help us define the use of Latin in its right place in the liturgy? Thank you. Let's go straight to Sacrosanctum Concilium, Chris since we spent about 14 weeks on it. What does Sacrosanctum Concilium say about Latin and the Latin rite? Let's say that the the Latin is the mother tongue of the church and is to be retained uh, in the celebration of the Latin rites. And then it says, however... The use of the mother tongue, the vernacular... vernacular. May be of great advantage to the people. Yeah, so and the it's, you use should be extended. This, yeah, according Look at that. to the, uh, the norms Wait, and the bishops. I want to make it very clear. 
these gentlemen have no documents sitting in front of them. <laughs> they just know this stuff. That's ridiculous. We're just making it up. We're ridiculous. No. Yeah. If we just, we're one brain sometimes. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I think, I think both hands in this uh, um, question are not quite right. But before First, that. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to emphasize what Vatican II says. Latin is the language of the Latin church. However, the vernacular <laughs> may be used if it's of advantage to the people. Okay, so it's not the vernacular is the language of the church and Latin may be used by fussy high church people, right? Mm-hmm. So we haven't experienced most people much Latin in the liturgy and so we tend to think of it as the exception rather than the norm. And so we're in this funny time where our lived experience is actually much contrary to the, uh, the actual documents of Vatican II itself that extended the permission. Yeah, it's a confusing thing, uh, the situation that you're describing now. But uh, uh, to the question, I mean, what was the language of the early Christians? It wasn't Latin. It wasn't Latin. It was Greek. For or Aramaic. Two, three, or Aramaic. But in the, in, the, in the Latin church, it was Greek until third century, fourth century, Right? It was, so they were speaking Greek in Rome in the prayer? Yeah. Oh, that, oh, cool. I mean, I wasn't there, of course. That's what they say. And hence, Kyrie eleison, still there. Uh, well, yeah. That's and, my favorite Latin yeah. phrase. I mean, it's, <clears throat> it, I think it's about the time that Jerome translates the, the New Testament, Old Testament too, into the vulgar tongue, and it's called the, the Vulgate. The people's tongue. So there was a hieratic liturgical language yes, that wasn't but, the vernacular. Right, but I think it became too far removed and inaccessible to the common people, so they translated it into the common language of the people, which was Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. So right. you're right. The Latin is the um, kind of the privileged language of the Latin Church. Um, but then on the other hand, you know. Does the devil hate Latin more than he hates, say, English or something like that? I have an answer to that. Yeah, well, what is it? (laughs) The famous Monsignor John Essif said, because it's the universal language of the church, it's more effective when he does exorcisms than any vernacular, which is a local language. And it's sort of like the priest praying versus a layperson praying. It has this universality. That's his claim anyway. But I don't know that you could really support that outside of his experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, we're not exorcists. Uh, and, and I've heard Father Grob speak about these same things. But I mean, on the other hand, Latin isn't the universal language. It's the, uni- it's the oh, language the of Roman, the Latin right? church. Yeah, but right. there's still 22 or 20. And, exactly. Yeah. And they're not using, never have used uh, any type of Latin. I, I think, too. So again, we we should say none of us can speak to whether the devil likes or dislikes Latin more than vernacular languages. Uh, what I think is the, the real energy behind, say, exorcist-type prayers may or may we're not speaking to uh, from firsthand experience, but I think it's it's the it's the fact that it's spoken by the church with Christ as her head, and that's the real power and energy and force in it. Now, the the words have to be able to manifest and sacramentalize and express that reality, and not all words do that as equally well. You know, on the other hand, though, we've talked in other podcasts, when it comes to exorcisms, those are a type of sacramental, and they are meant to engage the recipient. And if, I mean, I've studied Latin, I've taught a little bit of Latin, still uh, try to understand some Latin, but it's very inaccessible to me in particular. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, 
hearing the priest do an exorcist prayer over me, right? So part of it has to do with the devil. Part of it has to do with me. Maybe that's going to help me to pray and engage better. And if, if that's the case, excellent. If it's not, then it's not going to be perhaps as fruitful as it otherwise but might be. But the stuff be. that's same, the same every week, the Agnes Day, the, you know, the Sanctus Sanctus, I mean, mm-hmm. That should be easier for people to understand because it's the same every week. I've heard that too. Well, how am I supposed to know what Agnus Day means? It yeah. means every week for your God. whole life. Yeah. <laughs> or, or every day, you know? I mean, that's my two cents. Right. Well, that's the whole challenge with a language that's not the vernacular, right? So when you have a sacral language, like a dead language, right? It's, it's um, protected from the changes of life and words that mean something now that didn't mean something then. And um, it has a hieratic sort of sacral character. You know, if you go to some Buddhist monastery in Thailand and you hear this chanting in this foreign language and incense and you see these funny robes, on the one hand, you don't know what they're doing. On the other hand, it's kind of intriguing. I wonder what he's saying. It immediately like intrigues you to say, well, what is that? And then you ask the question. On the other hand, if hearing that la 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 over and over again becomes so normal that you don't care anymore and you don't ask the question, then it's actually opaque. So that's the nature of things that are veiled. When they're veiled, you want to lift up the veil and see what's in it. In Latin, you could say in a way veils the mysteries. On the other hand, you want to see what's in it, right? So you would like your mysteries veiled and unveiled in the proper time. Um, And so saying it's just the vernacular of a long time ago is not a serious enough question, I would say. What's the other thing he said? That it it should be never be done because it was the vernacular then? What was his other Oh, because it's not the language of the people. Oh, right. On the other hand, the people have a right to participate and know what they're praying. In fact, they should. So what do we have? Another long-winded non-answer, Chris. This is what we do a lot. Well, let's make it longer. So I was on a (laughs) retreat with, uh, I think they were Cistercians, not that long ago, and they prayed the whole liturgy in English. Okay? But they were, I mean, they're, they're used to praying together and they know what they're saying. I couldn't understand a single word of what they were saying because it was just, it was, uh, it was, it was garbled, it was just indistinct. Now it was English, but I couldn't understand what it was. And so, you know, whether it's Latin or whether it's English or whether it's Greek or whether it's whatever it is, uh, it, I guess it has that nature of both concealing and revealing the mystery and allowing your participation on a certain level. So it's, in some ways, it's not just a Latin question. Is does the language do what liturgical language is mm-hmm. supposed to do? But at the end of the day, Latin's the language of the Latin church. All right, Hervé, I hope that answers your question, or at least provides some clarity. <laughs> and if you want to email us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.